What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made every beautif everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot, who can bring him to see what will be after him. We're now going to read from Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 30. Um, it's in page 1178 in your church Bibles. Uh, 1179, actually. Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my rem remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness 
that comes from Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labour for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. morning everyone it is uh, school holidays and we are having a break from our usual um, sermon series on Hebrews and we will continue that in uh, two weeks time uh, my name is Henry uh, I'm one of the regular members here at church uh, it's great to meet you 
Uh, you know, this land that uh, the church, this church that uh, Matt stands on, uh, was gifted, given in 1859 by the Lord family. So this is a, a pioneer family who settled in Botany. Um, it was uh, given by Simeon Lord's fourth son, uh, George William Lord, who was a pastoralist, a businessman, and a politician as well. He was also the colonial treasurer. Um, you can find this information inscribed on the bronze plaque up there on the church wall. We will see it on the church wall and also on the slide. So that there is actually just behind and above the fan. And that bronze plaque tells you uh, who George William Lord was and uh, their contribution, the family's contribution to the building of this church. In fact, the Lord Street that you drove in from is named after the prominent Lord family. In fact, um, St. Matt's used to have the Lord family vault located on the church grounds. Uh, we have a picture of that. Uh, it's no longer there. This above ground vault contained the remains of uh, eight of the Lord family. Uh, it used to be on the southeast corner of the church site, pretty much outside where the existing kids' room uh, is. Uh, this is a picture, an aerial picture from 19, uh, 1943. Uh, so just outside the church was where the vault was. Um, in 1976, the vault was actually demolished and the remains uh, were cremated and the ashes placed with the Simeon's Lord, Simeon Lord's tomb in Pioneer's Memorial Park in Botany Cemetery. So if you go towards La Perouse, that's where Botany Cemetery is. Now, this church building was built in 1862. And this church has served the local community for over 160 years. The Lord family has left us a legacy. We here and the local community and also of the surrounding areas are the living beneficiaries of this legacy. If you're following on the printout, we are at the first heading in the sermon outline. Time is of the essence. Now, when you go to a cemetery, you will often see crypts, statues, tombstones, and other symbols of life and death. Now, have you seen um, a broken column like this one here uh, at Waverley Cemetery in Botany, Waverley? Um, is there a broken column? It is broken. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so there, if you go to a cemetery, some, you, you see you know, angels and statues, and sometimes you see a column. So you, you know the columns that you see in Greek temples, etc. Um, and you see that this column is actually broken. Um, it is not because it was vandalized. It is actually deliberately um, made to be a broken column. Do you know what a broken column means or symbolizes when it's used in the cemetery? It 
So it's deliberately made to be broken. It's not vandalized. Now, broken columns signify lives cut short, right? So you can see that this is a great symbol. Uh, those, particularly of those who have died young, that's a, this is uh, in Botany, sorry, Waverley Cemetery, uh, which is in uh, Bronte or Waverley. So it's a broken column. It's designed, made to be broken. It's not been vandalized. Uh, so you can tell that uh, this is to symbolize uh, those who might have died young or in the prime of their lives. Um, often they are erected when the departed had died suddenly. In some cases, a broken column also symbolizes the end of a family line. So it's a broken column, end of a family line. Time is of the essence. Um, it's a common term in legal contracts. Uh, this phrase means that a contract is time-sensitive and reduces any unnecessary delays in the performance of obligations. You know, uh, recently we had the Titanic wreck expedition, submersible tragedy. Uh, some news channels have put up a clock countdown until the submersible runs out of oxygen air supply for the five people on board. And this is what it kind of looked like. Um, so it's a countdown to how much air supply is still available um, in the submersible, and they needed to act quickly to rescue the five people on board. Now, I personally kind of think that doing so, putting up this clock, is a rather insensitive and not really that helpful, particularly to the ones, to the loved ones, who are waiting for news of the rescue. Now, most of us actually find it quite hard to talk about death, because death, dying and death can be confronting, and it's sad. But it is a fact of life that everyone, everyone dies. You know, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 that we read today tells us that there is a time for everything. More than that, it tells us that we live for a time and then we die. Everything in the world is put in place by the Creator God for a time and for a purpose. Ecclesiastes 3 tells us there is the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. There is a God-given purpose to life. There is a time for every matter and for every work. However, nothing endures forever. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Now, the problem for us humans is that we do not know when that will happen. We know the average lifespan generally, but we do not know how long a particular person will live. And if that life is going to be cut short, a broken column. Now, when you buy a candle, or even if you buy tea lights, usually at the bottom, the label kind of tells you how long they will burn for, four hours, eight hours, 20 hours. 
how long do you think that this candle will burn for? Six? 40 hours? <laughs> All right, wow, okay. Um, we'll, we'll see. Um, No, no fire alarms, right? Okay. All right. Now, there is a general life expectancy, but we humans do not know for sure how long it is. Something can happen. Anything can happen to cut it short. Today, we are going to look at living and dying well, particularly unpacking what it meant for the Apostle Paul to say in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We will not be going through uh, Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 to 26, verse by verse. But we will look at how Paul himself lived and died well in Christ. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. You will have to keep your Bible open today um, and have your finger on Philippians because we won't have the Bible verses projected onto the screen. We are at the second heading in the sermon outline, Living Well. Paul was born in the Greek city of Tarsus around A.D. Six, and probably died sometime around AD 64, mean, meaning that he would have been nearing the age of 60 when he died. Paul's conversion experience is recorded in both the Pauline epistles, that is, Paul's letters, uh, and in the Acts of the Apostles. According to both sources, to the Pauline epistles and also to Acts, Saul, as he was then known, was not a follower of Jesus and did not know Jesus before Jesus' crucifixion. So he lived at the time when Jesus was around, but he did not know Jesus personally. Paul's conversion occurred about maybe four to seven years after Jesus died, around AD 30. So don't ask me about this timing, about if Jesus lived for 33 years and died, why did he kind of die AD 30? That's a calendar thing. You can talk to me later during morning tea. Um, so Paul was around 30 years old when he was converted. Paul was known as Saul before his conversion. When he was converted, he had a new identity as a follower of Christ and no longer as a persecutor of Christians. His name was changed from Saul to Paul with a new identity in Christ and a new purpose in life. That new identity in Christ gave Paul a new posture, a new trajectory, a new purpose in life. That conversion changed who and what Paul lived for. 
the events that happened on the road to Damascus, where Paul was converted, relate not only to the Apostle Paul, whose dramatic conversion occurred there, but they also provide a picture, a picture of conversion of all Christian believers. While some of you may have an extraordinary and dramatic conversion known as the Damascus Road experience, um, I didn't have a Damascus Road experience. Mine was kind of gradual over probably about six months. Uh, the conversion of all believers follows a similar pattern to Paul's experience on the road to Damascus. Described in Paul's own words in Acts chapter 9. The response of both Saul and of all those who are redeemed by Christ is the same. What do you want me to do? As recorded in Acts 22 verse 10. What do you want me to do? Matthew 16, 24 to 26, record for us. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? To be a follower of Jesus is to die, to die to self and to live for the new master, the new king, the new lord. We each had our Damascus Road experience and received our commission for our new journey of life as the follower of Jesus. Matthew 28, 19 to 20, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This commission is to all followers of Jesus, not just to the 12 disciples. Philippians is one of Apostle Paul's four prison epistles. Prison epistles are letters that Paul wrote while he was in prison, and he wrote four of them. Most scholars believe the letter to the Philippian church was written around AD 61 to 63, while Paul was imprisoned in Rome. Note that Paul was imprisoned in Rome twice. You can read about Paul's first imprisonment in Rome in Acts 28. The Apostle Paul was incarcerated for about five years during his ministry, and about two and a half years spent in a literal prison cell. He was also held in house arrest in Rome, but two and a half years was actual uh, in a prison cell. Paul was Emperor Nero, wrote the Roman Emperor Nero's prisoner. Yet Paul's letter to the Philippian church shouts with triumph, the words joy and rejoice appearing frequently. 
Paul's for me to live is Christ started from the time he was converted. Paul did not wait until he wrapped up his other preoccupations. Paul did not wait until his retirement before he lived for Christ. He did not continue to live for himself. Paul lived for Christ. We are the third heading in the sermon outline, dying well. Paul started to die to self once he understood the good news of Jesus explained to him by another disciple named Ananias following Paul's road to Damascus encounter with Jesus. Acts 9 verse 20 tells us that immediately Paul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. Immediately he did that. Paul started to prepare for his death from the age 30 when he was converted until his eventual death, age 60. Do your maths, that's about 30 years. Paul was preparing to die and to die well for about 30 years. I don't know how long people usually kind of start preparing to die, but Paul started to prepare to die for 30 years. Paul was preparing to die when writing to the Philippine church around AD 61 to 63. Paul was preparing to die when writing to his protege, Timothy, around AD 64 to 67. All throughout, Paul did not rest on his past laurels, on his past achievements, but keep on leaning forward. Paul says in Philippians 3, verses 12 to 14, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the price of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The Bible does not tell us how the Apostle Paul died. There are a few Christian traditions regarding how Paul died, but most commonly accepted one comes from the writing of a man called Eusebius, he was a, an early church historian. Eusebius claimed that Paul was beheaded at the order of the Roman Act Nero or at the order of one of his subordinates. Paul's martyrdom occurred shortly after much of Rome burned in a fire in AD 64. So you know that Rome was destroyed and there was a huge fire, AD 64. That event Nero blamed on the Christians, and Paul, you was believed, died shortly, was killed shortly after that event because Christians were blamed for the burning and the destruction of Rome. Paul's last known letter before his death is 2 Timothy. 
Like Philippians, 2 Timothy was written during Paul's second imprisonment in Rome, around AD 64 to 67. So this is around the time when Rome was about to burn. Writing his last words, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4, 7 to 8, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul's for me to live is uh, for me to live is Christ, and for me to die is gain. Started from the time he was converted. Paul's for me to die is gain. Started when Paul started to live for Christ. So he started to live to die is gain when he started to live for Christ. We are at the final heading in the seven outline. Live and die worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul's for me to die is gain started when he lived a life, a manner of life worthy of the gospel of Christ. At the beginning of his letter to the Philippian church, Paul writes in chapter 1, verse 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul was writing to ordinary Christians, people in the Philippian church. So we see that Paul's own manner of life and death is not particular to the apostle, but it is the manner of life and death expected of every follower of Christ. The Lord family left a legacy of which we are living beneficiaries. I think we should not worry about whether we're leaving our mark, whether we're leaving a legacy. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us to leave that to God. Christians start preparing to die well from the moment we become a follower of Christ. How do we live and die worthy of the gospel of Christ? I've got five pointers, five suggestions. Number one, don't just sit there. Do something. Christians are saved by grace, through faith, not by works. For Christians are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared for us to do. Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10. Living and dying well is not about our human performance. It is not about doing, but about relying solely on what is already done by Jesus' completed performance on our behalf. We have full assurance of salvation even when we fail, even when we fail to take up our cross daily or fail to do works of service. Later in chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, Paul writes to the Philippians, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Living for Christ is not about saying, yes, I'm a Christian, 
or simply identifying as a Christian. The book of James in chapter 1, verses 19 to 27, tells us that faith is active. It is not passive. Faith is active. It is not passive. Real religion is expressed in action. What did Paul do? That's right, what did Paul do? In verse 22, Philippians 1, Paul says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Fruitful labor for me. Paul was proactive and intentional and purposeful. Don't just sit there. Do something. Don't just turn up to church to listen to sermons. You know, you can actually do that at home, listening to sermons online. Be other person-centered. Look for opportunities to serve others. Be proactive in being involved in church life. Be proactive in living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Don't just sit there. Do something. Don't just do it at church. Don't only do it. Do what is seen by others. Pray in secret. Work behind the scenes. God sees. God knows. Let your living for Christ be a pattern and posture of your life within and outside of Sundays at church. Point number two. Live and die well by not resting on one's laurels. Have you heard of the post-COVID pandemic great resignation and quiet quitting? I'll put the words up on the slide. Uh, this might be a phrase that you might have heard around uh, after the uh, COVID pandemic. Great resignation and quiet quitting, where people work to minimum requirements and expectations. Some Christians who have become a follower of Jesus earlier in their life have gone into a great resignation and quiet quitting mode. They now rest on the laurels. Paul certainly did not rest on his laurels. He kept on pressing ahead, pressing ahead. Paul lived for Christ for about 30 years from the time of his conversion until the time of his death. Live and die well by not resting on one's laurels. Point number three, live and die well with a decisive and continuing resolution to live for Christ through the different seasons in life. We each had a Damascus Road experience when we first had our eyes open and unblinded. But daily, we have to resolve to die to self, to continue daily to take up the cross of Christ and to follow Jesus as King and Lord. Now, it is true that each person has got different limitations and different life circumstances. Sometimes it is physical health, Sometimes it is mental health. Sometimes it is because of others. Sometimes, as the book of Ecclesiastes says, there is a time for everything. 
there are different seasons in life, different life circumstances at different times. We recently had two members from our partner church, Wall Street Church in Marubra, come to speak to us here at St. Matt's. Howard and Tricia Spencer are 60 years of age. They have gone to Belgium last year to help grow and strengthen a Christian university group in Brussels, Belgium. They said they were able to go in their retirement age because they now no longer have caregiver responsibilities for their children, nor for their parents who have died. But Howard and Tricia did not start living for Christ only when they went to Belgium. They have been faithfully serving and living for Christ in Sydney for many, many years through the many seasons in life. Live and die well with a decisive and continuing resolution to live for Christ through the different seasons in life. Point number four, live and die well by being Christ-centered. What does being Christ-centered mean? Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 to 8, Paul writes to the Philippian church, Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. We follow the pattern set by Jesus himself to serve the interests of others. We die to self when we put others first. Christians live and die well by being gospel-minded. Christians live and die well by being Christ-minded. Point number five, and this is the final point. Live for Christ today, not tomorrow. Christians die well by living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ here and now, today. Not tomorrow, not when we have more time, not when we retire, not when we, have more, we are more free from other earthly preoccupations. James, the brother of Jesus and the leader of the Jerusalem Council, writes in James chapter 4, 13 to 15, Come now, you who may say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. We humans do not know what will happen and when. We do not know how long a particular person will live if that life will be cut short, a broken column. Again, we humans do not know if a candle will be blown out before its lifespan.
Time is of the essence. Live for Christ today, not tomorrow. When our time is up, we die, just like this countdown clock. What would be said of us at our funeral? Have you thought about that? What would be the epitaph inscription on our tombstone? Will it be about our earthly preoccupations and achievements? What are they? Will it be he died doing what he loved? That we sometimes hear people say when they have nothing else to say to sum up a life. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 tells us, yes, there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot, and that each person has to give an account to the Creator God. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus, can I say that Jesus' call to you is to the good life in Christ? Come to Jesus, those who are heavy burdened, and find rest in Him. Come to Jesus. Your search for the meaning and purpose in life will end when you encounter Jesus as your Lord and Savior. May your eyes be unblinded along your road to Damascus to the beauty of living for Christ, where dying in Christ's riches is gain. For the converted, the followers of Jesus, the question is, are you living well in Christ? And is your posture kingdom-focused? If you have lost your first love, if you have become lukewarm, if you're coasting, drifting, if you're holding back, if you have gone into the great resignation and quiet quitting mode, now is the time to reposture yourself to resolve again to live and die worthy of the gospel of Christ. For both Christians and those not yet following Jesus, what will others say to sum up your life? Did you live and die well? Later, we will be praying about this, and uh, KJ will be uh, leading us in prayer about what we have heard today.